Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Web3 Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Rosenthal, and I'm so excited for today's call today with Yev Muchnik. Uh, Yev is a Web3-focused uh, attorney and someone who's been uh, really on the cusp of the regulations in Web3 since about 2016, as we jumped in the call and talked about today. She's with someone who's in the space during the whole ICO phase, and then has just been innovating and really leading leading the conversation around like the legal side of things ever since. Uh, Yev and I was able to hop on a Twitter space earlier this year, and it was just so interesting hearing her thoughts on DAOs. I wanted to have her on the call today to talk about some current things happening in the DAO space, as well as how um, education uh, plays a role in DAOs and everything like that. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, uh, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest for today, who is Yev Muchnik, a Web3 lawyer with Launch Legal, and Jason Weiner. Uh, really excited to kind of dive in today about your background in Web3, uh, Web3 regulations, DAOs, just kind of education in general. So thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, excited about what you're awesome. doing. Yeah, thank you. I think it'd be awesome to kind of just jump right in and kind of hear kind of briefly your intro and kind of your Web3 background. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a practicing lawyer for almost 15 years now. Um, I started kind of in the traditional track of doing corporate and securities, M&A, cross-border deals, um, always with kind of a technology slant, um, and then fell into the Web3 space around 2016 um, during the ICO boom um, and weathered <laughs> through that and tried to you know weather with a lot of, of startups and, and early stage projects um, through that time. Most of them did not survive. Some of them did. Um, but really, you know, it piqued my interest because it, it really, from a legal perspective, it was such a, and it still is such a green field. So being able to build on my expertise in, in kind of corporate structuring and securities, um, you know, having that foundation, that solid foundation has been really valuable to projects in this space. And then over the last 18 months or about two years um, have you know been working with a lot of protocols, DeFi projects, um, DAOs. Uh, DAOs have been a huge thing, um, and we sort of pioneered this uh, construct of a, a DAO co-op with um, the team at Jason Weiner, who are you know, preeminent co-op lawyers. So, um, as far as like a legal framework for wrapping a DAO, that's that's been really cohesive and like a very natural fit. So that has taken up the majority of my time um, over the last little while. So, yeah, that's yeah, kind of how that's I, awesome. I fell into um, it and stayed. Really cool. That's crazy that you were in the space before, like when everything at the ICO happened, especially as a person with uh, like the lawyer and regulation background. I'm sure that was an interesting time, uh, especially with nothing has been done like that in the space. And I'm sure there's been a lot of changes since then. Uh, but still not yet. I think we're still regulations still really coming. We'll talk about that here soon. But I think it'd be interesting to kind of hear how did you like learn about Web3, like as a lawyer and a compliant professional? And then what would you say, like other lawyers coming to the space, like what educational resources uh, would you recommend to them? Yeah, I mean, I get this question a lot. So, I mean, how I learned was just by doing, um, you know, and there's a lot of trial and error. There's 
Um, luckily, there's, you know, as the industry has matured, there have been more um, kind of industry and trade groups in, in the legal space, at least, so that are full of very bright minds, much brighter than mine, um, you know, with LexDAO and LexPunks and um, and the blockchain association that do a lot of policy, great policy work. So tapping into that and that brain trust has been really valuable, you know, particularly in the last couple of years. Um, not having that before was, <laughs> was really scary and kind of doing it on your own and walking, I don't know, just, it reminds me of kind of doing like bungee jumping in in New Zealand or Australia, which I did after law school. And it's like you, you're just you're on your own and, and you just jump with your eyes closed. So here it's it's nice to be supported and have, you know, other folks to reach out to and and battle test. But really, you know, a lot of it has just been by doing. And I think new people, especially lawyers coming into the space, can take advantage of that now. Um, the you know, Web3 has always been fairly welcoming, not fairly, but very welcoming. And I think that the same goes for these these legal groups that have formed, especially, you know, DAOs. I mean, you could look at them as as DAOs as well. Mm-hmm. And then why did you kind of fall into the DAO space versus more focusing on other parts of crypto and blockchain? Yeah. Um, so again, DAOs and, and governance and corporate structuring is, is pretty natural to me. So they kind of go hand in hand. I still, I mean, I, I very much believe in kind of the ethos of the DAO, which is, you know, kind of community organizing around particular projects, products, services, um, and even like, you know, values alignment or, or around current affairs and issues. So um, I'm originally from Ukraine, you know, seeing what I saw and experienced early earlier on this year and being able to organize a DAO around um, Ukrainian efforts. I mean, I think the impact of that is, is just magnanimous. Like what you can do with a group of people that, um, you know, that have different kinds of skill sets, that have technology as a platform in which to, in, to be able to organize on and to deploy resources and um you know nfts or crypto assets to to really like land in in the the right hands without going through intermediaries and that's exactly what web3 and blockchain is about yeah so seeing it seeing it you know with a personal issue to me and seeing how that panned out like was was really meaningful like it made me even more of a true believer in in how this can work and the potential it has I mean, it's still, I think it's still very like nascent early days. Um, there's a lot of stuff, you know, with, with governance and, and figuring out how that could work best. <laughs> you know, and it's not, for sure, know. for sure. And I think uh, Ukraine DAO is just a wonderful example of how DAOs can be successful. I, I've, I've used it an example many times when explaining DAOs and kind of what they can do. And I think it was just such a great way to be able to bring people together and bring kind of a treasury together and then just deploy resources as fast as possible. Whereas sometimes with like nonprofits, it's kind of hard to get the money together and then get it from like that top down structure and the money out. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did uh, I kind of enter curious with Ukraine DAO, like obviously had a great efforts getting the treasury together, but then how do they deploy the treasury? Like do they assign people who are near Ukraine to go out and give money and how, how was that deployment uh, work? Yeah. I mean, so there were, I mean, 
you know, there was kind of a core group and um, signers, like a number of signers around for Anosa Safe that ultimately made that decision. And then other decisions were made at, you know, the Telegram level or the Discord level or other kind of proposals that were put forward. But a lot of it went to either the ministry in Ukraine, which had set up at that point wallets and were accepting crypto donations. Um, and then others just went to... Um, like nonprofits or groups that were trusted and that were vetted. So, um, and then there was, there's Unchained DAO as well that we we joined forces with. And and just to be clear, I, we started our own DAO called Ukraine United that was mostly focused on like tech, creating tech tools to help during times of war, not just for Ukraine, but, you know, and then we sort of joined, we all joined forces. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that the different groups had different ways of, vetting proposals and and vetting groups to disperse funds to but um but generally you know there was a lot of kind of checks and balances on on who to deploy to yeah yeah i think from there we kind of interesting to go into like the news that's happening with oki dao i think this has been super interesting and i think everyone's been watching it very closely to see like kind of this how it plays out but briefly i'm sure you can explain it better than me but dookie uh, oki dao had a lawsuit served to them and they're basically like illegally offering leverage and, and margin products um, and they weren't properly um, registered to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And then the CFTC basically said that every voting member in the DAO should be held liable for these activities, which is just like a super interesting thing to happen. And I think will kind of affect case law in the future if this kind of goes through. So what are your thoughts on how this will affect DAOs? And then do you think that like every voting member in the DAO should be held like compliant for this or what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean i just a, a blunt no right but i don't think that it, all voting members should be held personally liable for violations of um of the commodities and exchange act in this case so you know it really this is a pretty landmark action on the on the cftc side um they're signaling you know, along with kind of the general Biden administration, unfortunately, that they're regulating by enforcement instead of by regulation, which is really concerning. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's an overreach. If you read the dissenting opinion of the um, the CFTC, it's not the commissioner, but it's one of the, the CFTC rule makers. She does a really great job at laying out all of the points of where, you know, they, they did overreach. As far as violations of the Commodities Exchange Act, I think that that's about, you know, it's valid that there was a violation of that. And, that, you know, the two individuals that were named in the initial um, lawsuit, you know, they're being held liable. But then to go into the DAO, which they treated as a unincorporated association, and they looked to state law instead of any kind of reg- like federal precedent, um, you know, they, they, they treated it as kind of an unincorporated association and a, a, you know, what basically amounts to a general partnership. So um, giving kind of joint and several personal liability to all of the voting members of the DAO. And I think that that's really discouraging, obviously, uh, on, you know, on the one hand, because it's, um, it doesn't really fuel good governance in DAOs. So, you know, more people are going to rage quit and, and be concerned about any kind of, you know, action that they have. So even if you voted on something that's not related to this particular construct of, of what they were doing, 
um, you know, people were or people are potentially going to be held liable. So it's at the the California um, state court at the moment, and we'll see how that plays out. I mean, I think they had a lot of issues with actually serving the the DAO members because they were all anonymous and you know used yeah, wallets. Yeah. So I'm curious as to how they're super interesting. Going and I I feel like that like I feel like it could totally affect like adoption of DAOs and and. and web three in general because coming into a DAO like you do your due diligence but it's like you don't go down to the nitty-gritty of like every single detail of like everything that's going on you want to kind of hop in start learning mm -hmm. start start adding the conversation and and if DAOs are being like served left and right like they're voting members like like with illegal activities that the DAO might be like performing on like the underhand that you don't know about like people are not going to want to jump in and start helping out with DAOs and so I think this is something exactly. to really look about and make sure that like moving forward this is not not the case but i think it is interesting too on how do you even like serve the members if they're all decentralized and and, and anonymous and so i think that's super interesting too and i think i mean i i think there was news that they the initial uh like service of process came through a chat box on <laughs> on the ukidao website so that's that's also pretty crazy yeah um what are and your that, thoughts you know, on on like how this could have been done differently. Like if, if Ukidao was doing something wrong and they have to serve papers, like how would you have thought to do it differently? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, you know, Ukidao was unwrapped. So there's no legal entity structure around Ukidao. And so this this is concerning because I think a lot of DAOs um, have kind of taken this approach in, in thinking that if they're fully decentralized and they're unwrapped, then there's not going to be any kind of liability because you know this, this decentralization concept that we've been <clears throat> talking about. But you know, I, I guess it, it still remains to be seen. Um, so that would be really the first thing that I would advise them as as counsel is to to wrap yourself in some kind of a legal entity structure, whether it's an LLC or a co-op or an unincorporated nonprofit association, because there's at least some level of limited liability um, that, and protection that, that they would be afforded and they wouldn't necessarily be responsible for the actions of, of the other members of the DAO. So that would be, I mean, <laughs> kind of the first thing that they could have done. Um, and, you know, it's, it's concerning because earlier this year, um, we, we saw the RFIA that was introduced by Loomis and Gillibrand, and it's a bipartisan effort to really clarify the law, to really give um, different jurisdiction to the, to the SEC and to the CFTC. And I think there's a lot of excitement about that, because if you could really fall into the, you know, the category of a digital or a commodity um, for NFTs, for you know, governance token, whatever it is, and that seemed to have been sort of a lot, I don't know, I guess more, um, not quite as, as, as much of like an art, like a, a hammer as the SEC has been serving. So, but I don't know if that's going to be the case. So the RFIA seems to be an incredible bill. I, you know, it's still subject to a lot of kind of committees and, and revisions. I don't know if it's going to come through this probably not going to come through this legislative session, but at least that provides a lot of clarity. And there was a lot of hope that the CFTC would take a, a more, you know, I guess, fair approach on, on digital tokens. Um, so this you know, is, is not quite as like seeing this Ukidao CFTC action doesn't give 
provide as much hope um, if, if they're actually going to be uh, kind of this sort of like not relying on precedent on, on federal precedent and, and taking you know, such a hard line. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any other like tools or like advice you'd give to like newly formed DAOs on how they can really stay like legally compliant? I think you mentioned like LexDAO earlier, like any other tools? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, having like contracts, even contractual agreements between the DAO members um, is, is pretty important and spelling out, you know, who's responsible for what, how indemnification plays out, um, limitation of liability you can work that into contractual means as well so you know having being wrapped in some kind of a a, like a recognized legal wrapper um you know keeping kind of auditable whether on chain or off chain um, records of relationships between you know DAO members or kind of how they interact with with the outside world is is pretty key Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I think kind of going from there, like kind of more shifting to talk about like the changing like regulations in the Web3 space. Mm-hmm. I think I personally think regulations a good thing for Web3. I think it would bring clarity and safety and sustainability. And I also think that it would be kind of pave the way to bring like bigger actors into Web3 space. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking immediately off um, <laughs> like a couple of days ago, I think they announced that Fidelity was going to come in and start after, offering crypto trading to their clients. And this could be like a massive amount of money kind of coming into Web3. And I think this type of player would only come in with a good amount of regulation, make sure that it was safe enough. Um, but I'd kind of be interested to kind of hear your opinions on how regulation is going to affect the Web3 space in the coming years, especially as someone that's seen regulation changing since 2016 and a lot of different things since then. So what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I also am of the belief that, that, some regulation can be good for this industry, but it's it's taking the right approach and getting that regulation right. I know that's that's almost impossible for regulators, but for example, if you look at the the newly announced um, DCCPA, the Digital Commodities Commodities Consumer Protection Act, that would fall under the, the CFTC as well. You know, again, it's it's only in bill form, and it was just released. Um, on, it was just released at the end of last month. So I think that that's still subject to a lot of revision, but that has been criticized as being, you know, a big affront and, and you know, killer of DeFi potentially. And they haven't gone out and, um, you know, they haven't gone out and, and surveyed like industry in a meaningful way and allowed it to comment on what would work here. So, you know, the DCCPA would potentially, you know, for for trading platforms and, and um, you know, the way that they define digital commodities is pretty narrow. Um, the way that they, they defined um, like platforms is, is pretty vast. So I know that there's been kind of a rollback in, in trying to exclude developers from that definition. But otherwise, you know, it would, it would require uh, custodians and, and traders and brokers and, and kind of this big, big category of folks in in the DeFi space to centralize a lot of their operations. So even, you know, something like Uniswap or SushiSwap would have to, um, you know, kind of, you know, create like Bank Secrecy Act compliance regulations within their platform 
um, they would have to report. The CFTC would also have the ability to kind of, you know, audit and and monitor the activities there. And that's not DeFi, right? That's yeah. centralized and how, finance. How do you think that like this can be like combated? Like, do you think the people making the regulations just don't fully understand decentralization and they need to learn more about it? Or how, how do you think this can be combated? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's one that's one way to look at it, for sure. I mean, I think that there we need more um, kind of industry players, uh, kind of policy folks, um, lobbyists. I, you know, I'm, I think there are ways to do it where you, you know, you kind of go out into the public, pull those, like the technical folks, the the lawyers, the um, the industry leaders, and and allow them to like like open up commentary on these things. And I think that they've done that in the past, and they haven't been doing this as much on the on the crypto web three industry level. So yeah, I mean, it's just opening up a, a forum and and getting commentary. But right now, I mean, you just everything is on you know being blasted on on Twitter, and so unless um, they do it in a way that's uh, it's a little bit kind of more focused. Um, I don't think we're going to get very far. And uh, again, we're going to default to regulation by enforcement. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think one good thing about um, regulation is, which is comes safety a lot of times, uh, which can be a good and a bad thing as mm-hmm. we just talked about. But I think there's like ways in general that like Web3, like even minus regulation can become safer for users. I think one reason, like one way that can be done is like even just on the, like the uh, application level with like changing, like if I'm going to be sending crypto from my wallet to yours, just having some more like simple text, like kind of demystify mm-hmm. the whole situation. Basically, it's just saying like, how much am I sending? Who is it going to? Or even like plain language, if I'm signing, signing a transaction, like what's going to happen afterwards? Uh, how do you kind of think in general, like going off that, like Web3 can become safer for users, maybe away mm-hmm. from even just the regulation <clears throat> side of things? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think disclaimers are always useful and having, um, you know, on the SEC side, especially from, you know, securities perspective, the it's always it's all about investor protection so knowing what you're signing up for what you're getting into that it's you know a risky industry how much you can um potentially lose as well you stand to lose and that you are either sophisticated or knowledgeable or you've been given all of the information that you've you've requested from the project or you know whatever it is if, if you're making your investments i think a lot of these things can be threaded through um more day-to-day transactions not just an investment but i also think that you know it needs to really be put as like a mandate instead of kind of all of the kyc focus that we have i think the mandate should be um levels of like security and you know in traditional tech companies you've got SOC compliance you've got all of these things so having that you know, be put onto the providers or the vendors, you know, including like MetaMask, including the exchanges and making sure that they have that infrastructure built in so that, you know, you're not buying an NFT and somebody, you know, kind of creates like a, a fake account or, you know, t- t- like um, what's the word that I'm looking for, you know, where you're kind of redirected and onto a different page and then somebody can steal your, your, the transfer of funds. So really putting that, those, um mandates onto onto these projects i think would be a a better way forward 
but security is key. I mean, we, we're seeing it more and more, like the biggest exchanges are being hacked. Biggest projects, I mean, are, you know, are losing millions and millions of, of uh, people's funds. So that's, that's pretty scary. And even, you know, sophisticated folks that have been around for a while are, are falling prey to, to these kind of tactics. So I, I think that the you know, security level compliance for this specific industry need to be put in place. Mm-hmm. And do you see that kind of coming? Like, do you see that it's like it's gotten better the past couple of years and they'll continue to get better? Or do you think it's something that's kind of lagging for the, the year that we're in in crypto adoption? Um, I certainly think that, you know, all of these kind of big issues coming up in the news makes it more, is, is a good thing, right? Is the fact that these things are happening, they're being identified and, um, you know, that the more people are aware of them is a, is, is a great advancement. Whether those techno, technological backend measures are being put in place, that I don't know, you know, just from not having like the, the, the pure technical expertise, but I do, you know, I, I am hearing more and more of it as, as kind of a, a conversation topic. And I think that's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think it kind of comes down to like the education aspect of it too. Mm-hmm. Like just educating the people and the builders and the traders on just how Web3 works and kind of how decentralized works. And I think that's one thing that we're really focusing mm-hmm. on EdLabs now. We're just really empowering people with education so they can move the space forward. What are your thoughts on like how education kind of impacts the blockchain space? And then also just like places that you would recommend people to kind of get educated on blockchain in general? I mean, education is key. It's, you know, you, you read about, like I said, just mentioned, you know, kind of sophisticated veterans that um, that lose a bunch of money or that get confused by simple transactions. Um, I saw a huge push for it over the last year during the, the bull market um, and DAOs, you know, there's a lot of DAO outreach, especially um, like you had Metagamma Delta or you have Metagamma Delta. I don't know how active they are, but that was a lot of, of, of their mission is bringing more women in the space and educating them on how they can, you know, how they can transact, how they can invest. Um, there was Shifi. I mean, there's a, a whole list of different DAOs and um, initiatives that, you know, are trying to be more inclusive as well, you know, just for wealth creation, but also for security and, um, and just kind of technical expert and basic technical expertise so i think education needs to be everywhere and i think that you know the, the government seems to also be calling for more education that was part of biden's executive order just figuring out how um how to create those kind of channels and and bring that up at the federal level so i think it's important i just don't know you know i i don't know that i have a great solution I, I, it may be more grassroots like at you know, these these DAO levels and targeting specific kind of subsets of folks to, to bring them into the um, into the space. Yeah, and I think it's a mix. I think one thing we've really learned with creating all this education and learning on that aspect is everyone learns differently. Like some people mm-hmm. like to come and learn a certain place and have a whole curriculum laid out for them. And so we like to learn more organically and kind of jump through Twitter and LinkedIn and and then Discord and kind of learn that way. And so I think just having education resources on a broad scale is is really, really best. And then also just like learn by doing, I think is a great, a great way for people to kind of learn about Web3 too, is just 
setting up their MetaMask and making transactions and just being able to mm-hmm. kind of use it and, and enter DAOs and, and, and vote in, in a DAO and so like that. So I think that's kind of a good way also for people to kind of learn about Web3. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that, that that's that's a really wise statement that everybody learns differently, right? And you have, and I hate to make this like ageist or, or like genera- generational based, but like the majority of like an older population do find it more difficult to kind of lean in or to interact in a discord type setting i still find it very difficult like, to manage all of the discords and to know what i'm looking i mean it's like a it's like a 24 hour a day like, job or like you can yeah, and i mean discord like was not even made for like this type of like learning like crazy adoption like it was really made as like a gaming platform like you come in there you have like one or two that if your favorite games and you can chat with the community like we've really used discord as like a place to come and learn and it's just like not even what it was supposed to use for and it's a good thing that we've, we've found a spot and we're using it now but i think other ed- educational things it's, it's going to be exciting to kind of come in and and show the ways people can learn through even just i think we've been so used to learning through like kind of the typical college education for a long time that's just how we're mm-hmm. used to it you kind of come in you have your class you take your classes and i think some people actually really enjoy that that setup of more like here's hear the topic like learn the topic and kind of go through like this journey of learning whereas i feel like these early crypto adopters have really gone out and learned through just discord and like chatting people on on crypto twitter and talking in spaces i think this really really works for some people but i think to kind of have the more massive widespread adoption like Mm -hmm. we're gonna have to be able to give people other other means to to learn especially if that's even that's learning more in a traditional way i think that's fine but i think just having those resources is pretty important yeah i just have to add that i'll, I'll never forget i mean what, during 2016 2017 the most popular way to interact and kind of come together was through meetups like in irl meetups um and there were a lot of them. It, I mean, Colorado was amazing for, you know, Colorado is known as Cryptorado. And so there were a lot of these meetups happening daily, you know, weekly. And I'll never forget one of them where there was, it was a smallish group. Um, we were learning how to actually like pro, like code a blockchain uh, in addition to trading. But <clears throat> there was a woman that came in her maybe like mid 60s and she came with these like printouts of you know what is bitcoin what is blockchain and i guess she had subscribed there was like a subscription service of like for investment purposes and education purposes and that was her you know medium and she was investing during that time like she was doing well but like learning from these paper printouts that would be sent to her you know once a week or like once a month and i I found that wild but it was you know you really have to speak to your audience and and tailor the messaging and the content to, you know, how, how that particular audience learns. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that kind of goes down to like, like community learning, like it's always kind of fun to come together and just like talk and chat it out about what people are learning, what people are doing. Cause you kind of just like learn things that you never would kind of learn on your own like, learning journey. And that's what mm-hmm. they were really excited to build out. Like with Ed Labs, we're going to do like a community contribution portal where people can kind of come in and apply to like be contributors to like the Ed Labs curriculum, because it's like, you, they'll be learning something that is like new and innovative, innovative people aren't even talking about and to be able to bring it in and have everyone learn about it, which is kind of what you do at like Web3 meetups. I've really enjoyed mm-hmm. going to, to a bunch of these in the past year, year or two. And I think it's just super interesting to kind of come together and chat with people about what they're building, what they're doing, because it's just the space moves so fast and there's just so mm-hmm. much going on. 
And it's all, I, every time I talk to anyone else in the space, I always get something new. I always learn something new and hear what, kind of what they're building. And I think it's just fantastic. I think the, the Web3 meetups and just community like collaboration, I think is huge. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. Well, it's awesome. This has been super interesting to chat with you about DAOs, regulations, education. I think you're someone that's been really pioneering in the regu- like the like background of like lawyer and attorney and in, in the space. And so I think it's been so great. So thank you so much for coming on, Yev. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks.